Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the BMO Financial Group Conference Call on COVID-19, what it means this week. During the conference, during the question and answer session, if you have a question, please press star 1. If you have a question and you're using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before making your selection. Should you wish to cancel your question, please press the pound sign. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist for BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead, Mr. Belsky. Uh, thanks, Laurie. And on behalf of BMO Financial Group, thank you so much, everyone, uh, for dialing into this very, very important call. I am Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. Uh, we are honored uh, this week once again to have Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer at WebMD, to really be the focal point of this call, what has changed since our last call, and an overall update to his professional view in terms of COVID-19 that will be followed up by two of our partners uh, in terms of subject matter experts here at BMO Financial Group. First off, uh, Deputy Chief Economist for BMO Financial Group, Michael Gregory, and followed by Head of Fixed Income Strategy, Mark Karens. Then I will follow up. Uh, lastly, uh, to tie everything hopefully into a nice bow with respect to what's happening in the stock markets in both the United States and Canada. And then we'll open it up for Q&A from the crowd. Just as, an, as a reminder, Dr. White is the Chief Medical Officer at WebMD. In this role, Dr. White leads efforts to develop and expand strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely public health issues, kind of like what's going on right now with COVID-19. Prior to WebMD, White served as the Director of Professional Affairs and Stakeholder Engagements at the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the U.S. FDA. Bear in mind also that Dr. White still sees patients in the Washington, D.C. Uh, and Maryland area and is at firsthand knows exactly uh, what is going on in terms of this battle and crisis in terms of COVID-19. With that, I'm going to hand the ball off to Dr. White. Dr. White? Thank you, Brian. <clears throat> Good afternoon, everyone. I know there's um, some anxiety about what's going on with COVID-19, but what I'm going to do over the next few minutes is tell you what we know and, and where I think we're going. So let's start with the facts. This is as of uh, about 30 minutes ago. Globally, there's 351,731 cases of coronavirus and 15,374 deaths. In the United States, we have over 34,000 cases. Um, but important to keep in mind that different parts of the country are experiencing different levels of COVID-19 activity. So I, I mentioned there's 34,400 cases. Half of those are in the state of New York. 9,000 are in New York City. And if I took California and Washington, that's 60% of all current cases of COVID-19 in the United States, resulting in 414 deaths. I want to talk about what's new since our last call, where there's been more discussion about COVID-19 activity in young people. And by young, we're really counting between in early 20s to late 40s. Um, there's more cases here than in Europe, but also keep in mind that the majority of deaths are still around people of 80 years of age. There's been no deaths in the United States of anyone between the ages of 0 and 19, um, and four deaths between the ages of 20 to 44. Um, I don't want to diminish that young people can get COVID-19, and there's lots of talk, and I'm going to come back to it, about the mitigation strategies that we need to make sure that we're enforcing in youth and younger folks. But remember, it's it's actually more than 80% um, are surviving. 80% have mild to moderate disease, probably 90 to 95% 
actually are surviving coronavirus. That doesn't mean that there's not morbidity associated with it. The course to recovery typically is about two weeks for mild symptoms, and it can be three to six weeks um, for those that have severe cases, and there is some concern about residual decrease in lung function. But these are the things that we need to be thinking about and why it's so important, these mitigation strategies. And I do want to mention at WebMD, where we have 81 million unique visitors every month, we launched a daily news video called Coronavirus in Context, where I'm interviewing folks and really trying to get practical tips from experts. I'm going to share what I've been learning, and I'm sharing the videos uh, with our BMO colleagues. Uh, and the, the perch really has given a perspective to share, and I'm going to talk about what I've learned from talking to the Surgeon General, Dr. Eric Topol, who's head at Scripps, Dr. Mitchin Elkin, who's the president-elect of the American Heart Association, and what's the relationship between heart disease and coronavirus, Dr. Ann Peters, the head of diabetes program at USC, to hear what's happening about those folks with diabetes and coronavirus, and then Dr. Kaplan, who's from the Society of Critical Care Medicine, uh, a professor of surgery at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm going to share some of these insights over the next few minutes. Let's talk a little bit about testing because that's an important component. There's now over 254,000 tests. When I talked last week, there were about 20 to 30,000, and that's really been because of the inclusion of the private sector. Uh, and I will tell you that 254,000 tests doesn't include local lab tests at hospitals. It's really the community-based testing that's state-managed but locally operated, adapted to local needs. And that's what's important. And we're going to see a steep rise in the number of new cases because we are testing about 10,000 people a day minimum. So that results in a lot of new cases when we increase the denominator, but that's expected. And I don't think we're talking enough about it doesn't mean the situation is getting worse as we find new cases because we know there's community spread. But if you take the total denominator, including that we're testing people who should be at higher risk, less than 10% are testing positive. The other good news is the FDA announced this weekend it approved through an emergency use authorization for a point-of-care coronavirus test that's going to give results typically within 45 minutes. And we expect that to be in production at the end of March. So that's good. But here's where we are in testing. A couple important points because I know a lot of folks are concerned and want to get a test. So the recent guidance from the CDC focuses on inpatients. Those hospitalized patients who have signs and symptoms of COVID-19 and the test result is going to inform decision-making. And then other symptomatic individuals, the elderly, which we're defining as greater than age 65, with chronic medical conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, respiratory problems, or an immunocompromised state, cancer, HIV, that might put them at higher risk uh, for poor outcomes. And then symptomatic healthcare professionals. And the reason why we have this priority is even though we have a lot more tests, we are concerned about the number of reagents that are necessary as part of testing, even the number of pipettes, um, as well as to do the test in its current state, you need to have a personal protective device, and those can be in short supply. There's also uh, perhaps some testing that's going to be able to be self-testing done at home, and we'll hear more about that. And depending upon where you live, you might have heard that several cities aren't doing testing anymore. Los Angeles County, New York City, um, <coughs> excuse me, unless it's going to change care. And that's an important component. Let's move to the mitigation strategies. How are we fighting this, you know, pandemic? And on March 16th, the president announced the 15 days to slow the spread. I point out that it's March 16th because March 31st, will be the end of those 15 days, and we'll expect to hear some new guidance. But this is about social distancing still, the cancellation of events, avoiding crowds of 10 or 25 people. Different states have different 
numbers, and then obviously practicing good hygiene. Strategies are differing by location. Several states have a shelter in place, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, California, Illinois, Kentucky, Ohio, Louisiana. We discussed that with the Surgeon General. These are shelter in place orders. They're not lockdowns and strategies are going to differ by different regions. But if you ask me what I expect to hear at the end of the 15 days, if you've been following this in the last day or two, we've been hearing more and more about risk-based stratification in terms of mitigation strategies. So we're starting to think more about is locking down and closing schools, is that potentially causing more risk if kids are staying with elderly parents or grandparents? What's happening with the colleges? Can we think more about stratifying and mitigation strategies based on risk. I think that's early on, but I think we're starting to hear about it, recognizing how long this might go on and having really local responses based what's happening in the region. And the reason I bring that up, there's been a lot of talk about modeling and where we are on the curve. Everyone's talking about flattening the curve, and that's a good thing. And Dr. Fauci has been talking this weekend about how he doesn't think we're like Italy and that our curve is going to be like Italy, which is the most concerning, excuse me, most concerning. And the reason why that is, is the Italian population is older. They have significant more comorbidities, and 99% of the deaths in Italy have been in people with one or more comorbidities. They have a higher smoking rate. They have a higher obesity rate. And they started their mitigation strategies much later on. So there's lots of talk about where we are on the modeling, whether we're 10 days behind, 7 days behind. But it's not truly comparing apples to apples. I really want to focus on that because the denominator in terms of testing has been very different. We're slowly catching up. Um, but I want you to keep that in mind when you think about modeling because the Italian population is very different than the U.S. population, even if they have more beds per capita um, than the U.S. The CDC recently launched a coronavirus checker at coronavirus.gov. You can enter your symptoms, whether or not you're a caregiver, whether or not you're male or female, and your age. I'm going to tell you, it honestly, it needs some work. It really focuses on if you're short of breath, if you have a high fever, and then basically tells you, you know, call 911. But at least it's progress in terms of trying to give people good information. Um, Brian mentioned I still see patients. I saw patients on Friday. And I'll tell you the telehealth benefit and improving um, how we do telehealth and removing some of the regulatory burden really improved my day. 80% of the patients were by video conferencing or by phone. Only about two or three patients came in, and that really helps in protecting surge capacity, in conserving important equipment. Um, in, in the past, there, there really has been a lot of regulatory burdens to uh, telehealth, especially relating to what platform you could use. You couldn't use FaceTime. Now you can. You previously had to be licensed in the same state as you saw the patient. That's been waived for now. CMS has said it will not, it will have selective enforcement. And if you can prove a good faith provision of telehealth, that's important. So that's something, you know, in the future that I think really can change um, some aspects of our care, the telehealth benefit. I'm going to send all of these videos that I've been doing with people specifically about cancellation of elective surgeries, both the Center for Medicare Medical Association has supported that to protect surge capacity. Um, we talked about a vaccine trial that's currently underway. It started last Monday, and I'll talk to you about from my FDA experience. We all know that's an 18-month endeavor under the best of circumstances, and it doesn't mean that you, you are successful right out of the gate. Instead, let's talk about treatment. Lots of folks have been talking about uh, Plaquenil, which is hydroxychloroquine, and perhaps the use of azithromycin. 
One concern is that aquanel hydroxy uh, chloroquine is currently used for patients with lupus, so there's a concern about potential shortages. Um, and where we are there, and I say this from my FDA experience, and Dr. Topol has talked about this, we still need to look at data. We don't all of a sudden lose objective interpretation of information. We still can do clinical trials, and, and in my time at FDA, we talked about real-world clinical trials, and that's what we're doing now. So some patients are receiving this, these drugs under certain indications. We need to collect the data. We need to publish the data and look at the data. I'm going to be honest, it's still early on whether to know if these drugs will work. In theory, they're, they're not antivirals. They're anti-parasitic. Um, they're, anti, they're antibiotics, so we'll have to see. There's also studies being done on remdesivir, uh, which was used for Ebola. So there's more progress in terms of treatment than where we are in terms of vaccine development. You know, in terms of um, optimism, I, I, I was mentioning to um, some folks how uh, Dr. Fauci here in D.C. was seen walking with his wife uh, very casually uh, over this weekend, which is in some ways a, a very good sign. Uh, but more importantly, he has repeatedly talked about that we're using the right public health strategies, which we know are effective in terms of social distancing, good hygiene, protecting surge capacity, thinking about therapeutic interventions, while still at the same time um, starting vaccine development. And our population, as he has said repeatedly, is very different than that of Italy. So we're doing all the right things. We're following effective public health strategies. If there was a concern I, I've had, I've, I've said it before, there's a lot of armchair epidemiologists and armchair infectious disease doctors who um, are very much gloom and doom and not necessarily giving us the best information that can be conflicting with other experts. I really have been talking to the folks that are on the ground, um, treating patients that are managing it from a health system, from a state, from the federal government. And we need to have more discussion about effectively communicating risk. And, and that was one of the challenges that we've had in a younger population where we typically saw a lot of people still uh, on the beach in Florida. And I think we're making progress there, but there's still work to be done because we know the young folks are not watching the presidential briefings. They're not going to the CDC site. So how do we help? educate everyone effectively about communicating risk. And I think one of the biggest changes that we're going to see uh, in another week or so where we start to have more data about how we're doing in the mitigation strategy is how do we more uh, stratify risk so we can, you know, address the, the overall challenges of, of social distancing. And with that, I'm going to turn it over Back to Brian, and I'll be happy to answer any questions when, when time allows. Uh, thanks so much, Dr. White. We're going to move on to Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory. Michael, go ahead. Well, thank you, Brian. Uh, as Dr. White mentioned, uh, one of the mitigation strategies is uh, social distancing, uh, uh, shelter in place, and, and we've, if anything, we've seen a proliferation and a, and a more aggressive push on that. Uh, on both sides of, of the Canada-U.S. border. Uh, and while it may be effective from, from a, a mitigation standpoint, it clearly is worsening uh, the downturn uh, in the economic uh, situation. Uh, the uh, uh, activity simply is not getting done anymore. And at the same time, we're seeing other industries, for example, autos, uh, deciding to sort of pare back production altogether uh, while, uh, until uh, for the remainder of this month. So the, the headwinds on the economy are, are getting much more severe. And, uh, and literally, uh, you know, you, uh, most analysts are, 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 are taking the economic data. They think they got a good grasp of it, and, and, and modeling it through, and then you know, ha having to make some changes uh, as, as uh, we begin to see the policy reaction and the public reaction to uh, COVID-19. Uh, our own view.
you is that uh, we are likely to see uh, a pretty hefty contraction in the economy for the month of March, and that's going to pull the entire quarter into negative territory. Our, our sense is the U.S. probably contract about 2% at an annual rate in Q1, Canada at about 2.5%, a little bit more than the U.S., simply because of the extra headwinds provided by uh, the rail disruptions, but also uh, the, uh, uh, the the collapse in, in oil prices, which, of course, is an extra burden for uh, the Canadian economy. And then in the second quarter, uh, we have double-digit declines on, on both sides of the border. And there's a lot of uncertainty about just how bad things will get in the second quarter. I mean, you see estimates from some shops, they're like 20%, 25% contraction for the U.S. We saw over the weekend, uh, St. Louis President Bullard was talking about uh, a 50% contraction in the U.S. economy annualized in the uh, in the second quarter. And where some of these differences are, uh, just trying to gauge, you know, how deep the sort of the downturn gets. But when we begin to see that recovery, uh, do we begin to see activity beginning to rebound by the end of May? Is it June or if it's later than that? And that's where you see a lot of the uh, divergences. Now, how deep things, how bad things get, we'll start to get a sense of that pretty soon. Uh, we are beginning to notice uh, the, the the increase that were being reported in uh, applications for unemployment insurance. Uh, last week, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau mentioned that there was 500,000 new applications in Canada for UI. Uh, to the extent all those people, you know, get, get, show up as unemployed and there's no other uh, offsets elsewhere, you know, you're probably looking about a, easily a two and a half percentage point increase in the jobless rates. In the U.S., last week we had a 70,000 increase in jobless claims, and uh, quite frankly, given what we've seen at the state level reported, we could see somewhere between two to three million increase in uh, jobless claims uh, for uh, the week ending this Saturday. And again, if you again sort of assume all these folks uh, end up as officially unemployed, you're looking probably about a one, and a, uh, a one to one and a half uh, uh, increase in the uh, uh, jobless rate from that perspective. I was fact as high as uh, two percentage points for the U.S. So, I mean, the bottom line is the things seem to be deteriorating very, very quickly. Uh, the good news from all this is the policymakers are responding very quickly. We talked just this morning. The Fed uh, weighed in with, with further emergency measures, including open-ended QE, whereas they had some limits on it from uh, from last week. And, and taking what they did last week in terms of supporting the commercial paper market through direct purchases through a special purpose vehicle and expanding that to new and existing uh, corporate bonds as well as to uh, asset-backed securities. So the Fed seems to be doing what it is can, and the Bank of Canada has also been uh, uh, last week announcing several measures as well to, to try to uh, ensure that credit markets continue to function, uh, that uh, the credit creation process continues to function. It doesn't add to the downturn and hopefully sets the stage for that rebound at some time uh, in, in the summer months. We're seeing on the fiscal side last week, of course, we had the announcement by the Canadian federal government. We're kind of waiting with bated breath to see what comes out of Washington. But the bottom line is that uh, what we've seen so far, quite frankly, still might not be enough. And we expect to get more measures by central banks, more measures by the fiscal authorities in order to ensure that this uh, downturn uh, is as minimal as, as it possibly can. And it's going to be severe, but hopefully sets that stage for that rebound in the latter part of this year. And by the way, we are expecting, at least our, our, our current projections, some 7% annualized growth on both sides of the border in the third quarter as we see that rebound in activity. So again, it, it, this is temporary, but nevertheless, it is quite painful. I'll leave it, uh, I'll, I'll turn things over to my colleague, uh, Margaret Cairns. Thank you, Michael. So in characterizing the, in characterizing the market, as Michael mentioned, the Fed expanded QE, announced another huge wave of market support this morning. Despite this, um, Treasury bills are trading near zero. IG is only slightly better and fading. Equities are down hard once again on very thin liquidity. And the bottom line is that the markets still are not functioning in terms of the plumbing. So we get into the why question, and it's really that Congress has yet to agree to a fiscal stimulus package. Some of these Fed support facilities which will be very strong in the marketplace, are only just beginning, while others are not up and running yet, including the programs announced today outside of the unlimited QE. And then finally, 
the depth and breadth of this current crisis in terms of the fallout for corporations is still unknown. So in terms of market functioning, um, while the news of support is extremely positive, we need the programs to actually be implemented. In other words, we need the buying to actually begin. So therefore, we're still in a major liquidity crunch, which I can characterize by you know, dealer capacity is just simply not enough to absorb the flows. This has created a negative, feedback, a negative feedback loop. Uh, the initial selling wave resulted in gapping spreads, falling prices in corporate debt market, uh, which resulted in forced liquidations and prices falling further. Uh, at the same time, as I said, we don't really know what the economic toll is going to be. And as Michael mentioned, some of the predictions are quite dire. And you know, the hope is that it's a short-term thing. So a lot here is lingering on the speed, uh, the depth, and the breadth of government support, in addition to, I guess what I'd say is how forgiving or punishing the terms of that support will be. Presumably, loans to larger corporations will have to be paid back out of future earnings. But if they are simply a replacement for say, the inability to tap the corporate markets currently, uh, the impact really will be determined by the length of the shock to earnings, which, as we know, is you know, presently one of the big unknowns. Uh, moving on to sort of what stops this negative feedback loop that we're in, I think first the strong monetary fiscal response that rapidly provides what, what I call like a bridge, an adequate bridge to individuals and companies so that the hit to the economy is, in fact, temporary uh, rather than a permanent destruction. And, and that will come as some of these programs, the support will come as some of these programs do come online in their full force. I think we need some facts surrounding the degree of the virus spread in the U.S. and the success of containment efforts currently in place, probably the development of treatment strategies, as uh, was already spoken about, and, and you know, finally a vaccine, which seems to be quite, quite some time away. Uh, but the bottom line there is you know, we will have some support on the plumbing side, but quite a bit of unknown, and it really depends on how, how the government and the fiscal side supports some of these uh, programs uh, to bridge corporations uh, through this time and individuals, of course. Uh, moving on to, I guess, today's support, just really quick, um, you know, they're going to maintain, they're going to do everything they can, the Fed, uh, unlimited treasury and agency MBS purchases. Uh, they announced support for primary and secondary market credit, and clearly that market is not functioning. We've seen um New issue concessions at levels never, never before seen. And corporations need to roll over this debt in order to, uh, fund themselves and remain viable. So they're providing, the Fed is providing 300 billion in financing facilities, uh, characterized, I think, simply just large employer, uh, support new bond and loan issuance and liquidity for outstanding corporates. Uh, they're going to support consumers and businesses, uh, helping the ABS market to open up and municipals um, expanding that into one of the liquidity programs. So just to take a step back, you know, we focus here on macro, thick macro strategy. And one of the key focuses in our markets, of course, is U.S. Treasury markets. And looking at the playbook from 2008, you know, we know it's going to be different this time, but I think it gives us a good basis for, for what we may expect initially uh, what we saw back then was that Treasury ramped up bill issuance rapidly. Net bill issuance in the first three months of the 2008 crisis was close to $800 billion. And, and then it was slightly negative for 2009 as the coupon issuance picked up. In terms of coupons, uh, in nominals alone, the playbook was to ramp up two-year issuance, followed by the reintroduction of the three-year, seven-year, and 30-year tenors. These alone, the three sevens and thirties, contributed about $800 billion in net new supply from their reintroduction to the end of 2009 alone. So the ability to tap these, these sectors allowed for quite a bit of issuance uh, in the coupon market. So in 2008-2009, the fiscal stimulus plan was about you know, just over $900 billion. Uh, the current package is considerably larger, uh, so therefore I think that the 2020 supply playbook is likely to be 
similar to 2008 in many ways, but different in many others. Bill issuance should start off quite heavy, uh, and, and then Treasury will begin to increase the auction sizes across the board, led by twos and threes, but the ramp up across tenors, including the long end, is highly likely because Treasury doesn't have three sevens and thirties that were unused to start tapping. And Mnuchin uh, has come out and stated that, you know, he will issue, Treasury will issue a lot of, a lot of long-term debt. Uh, they're probably likely to look to tap uh, any new products as well, M- likely more issuance in the 20 years than had originally been expected. But remember, the original amount expected, probably just under $100 billion starting in May through year-end, uh, was needed to fund the deficit uh, as it was before this crisis. So we would look for, for everything to be ramped up across the board. Uh, and I think alongside of that, it's not a great big leap to, to make to think that the Fed will be buying quite a bit of this in their unlimited program. Uh, so hopefully that will um, help the market to uh, get through this period of heavy, heavy issuance. In terms of Treasury yields, Ultimately, we do expect to send to steepen to about 100 basis points. We're probably in the 44 area at the start of this call. Uh, part of that is if we think about two-year yields didn't fall into the teens and during the last period until the Fed came out with um, the date-based forward guidance, and that was in August 2011. And so twos, as I said, broke into the, 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 the teens and – I think that we could expect to see something like that again. Currently, we're at 26 basis points. And in addition, as we move through this and we get some of the facts and and, and get away from some of the panic that's going on, uh, we'll get a little bit more uncertainty as to how do we think how we think the timing of this and and everything else uh, uh, actually happens. Um, so I guess the bottom line is we expect extremely heavy issuance. And massive, massive buying out of um, the Fed. So on that, I will turn it back to Brian Belsky. Hey, thanks, Margaret, and thank also Michael for those wonderful comments. We're going to follow up with some Q and A here for a second, and uh, in, in a second, I'm sorry, and allow uh, the listeners to ask any of us uh, the questions before I hand it back uh, to Lori to queue up the questions just in terms of an investment strategy perspective, both in terms of Canadian and U.S. stocks. Forecasts uh, are obviously, as Margaret and Michael spoke about, exceedingly difficult with the rapidity of news and data and emotions and volatility changing on an almost daily, if not hourly basis. At the end of the day, we still believe in the wherewithal of, of U.S. companies and Canadian companies. We still believe that North America houses the best companies in the world. Uh, investors should continue to tilt from a longer-term perspective toward high quality. What does that mean? Focus on operating performance, stability of earnings, innovation, management teams, uh, good old-fashioned fundamental stock picking, we believe. As you build your bottoms-up portfolio, what does that mean for the near term? Uh, yes, it's great that we've seen a strong monetary uh, response. Hopefully, we will get a stronger fiscal response in terms of what's coming from the government. To be clear, we continue to believe that until we see uh, a pattern of less negative headlines surrounding COVID-19, it's going to be very difficult to mount uh a significant recovery in U.S. and or Canadian stocks. U.S. stocks and Canadian stocks seem very aligned with respect to the performance we've been. Typically and historically, U.S. stocks go down a lot more and then Canada follows suit. Uh, We're seeing a lot of lock and step type of behavior there. That's principally because of the very strong economic correlations that both countries have to one another. We think that is going to continue. However, our forecast remains resolute. We believe that when we see Again, less negative news on the COVID uh, crisis. Uh, we, we will see an expansive and explosive recovery. Michael talked about in his comments with respect to the second half recovery in GDP. We think earnings uh, from the corporate side over the next 12 months uh, coming out of this will be excessively expansive, especially considering the monetary policy and the fiscal response that we've seen. So panic is not an investment strategy longer term. 
over the near term investors should focus on defense and clearly capital preservation on the equity side, uh, but be mindful of trying not to pick the bottom and time the market and clearly not be emotional with respect to their investment decisions when it comes to uh, U.S. stocks and Canadian stocks. And with that, Lori, if you could please open up the lines for questions. Certainly, Mr. Belsky. We will now take questions from the telephone lines. If you have a question and you're using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before making your selection. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If at any time you wish to cancel your question, please press the pound sign. Please press star 1 at this time if you have a question. There will be a pause while the participants register for questions. Thank you for your patience. Well, thank you, Laurie. And I guess uh, the first question comes to mind is over the weekend, uh, we heard a lot in the press about this whole notion of flattening the curve. What does the curve look like? A lot of people are focusing on the quote-unquote curve. Dr. White, if you could explain a little bit like uh, what that exactly means, how the curve has changed this week, and what your kind of forecasts are uh, uh, in terms of the curve and how investors and companies should kind of look at what this whole notion of the curve means. Sure. And, and a lot of folks have been posting different pictures of <clears throat> the various curves from Italy, China, South Korea, Spain, the United States. And, and really what we're looking at on the different axes are typically the number of cases uh, plotted against states. Um, and there are certain activities that are done at each state. So that's why sometimes uh, folks will say, well, we're 10 days behind Italy or, or seven days behind another country, meaning when some states implement it, um, social distancing, closing borders, um, you know, stay in place orders. That's not what they use in Italy term wise, but you get the notion. And then really plotting um, cases and deaths. And really what they're looking at is the slope of the curve. But what I had referenced to earlier, it's kind of hard to compare these different curves. They're not truly apples to apples. And we say, where are we today compared to where Italy was 10 days ago or where Spain was 10 days ago? What we're trying to do in flatten that curve is trying to delay um, the number of cases, as well as reduce the number of cases. So we don't want everyone that contracts coronavirus to contract it at the same time or have serious complications at the same time, because therefore they're going to overwhelm the healthcare system. If everyone that had flu came in the same week to the hospital, we're not going to be able to accommodate it. So instead, through social distancing, can we decrease community spread so the number of cases, even if they're the same with all things being equal, and we would think they would decrease, would be spread out over time. So if we're mapping the number of cases, that slope is going to decrease and be extended over a longer period of time to allow the health system to address the increase in cases. That's the whole concept of flattening the curve. But from a mathematical and epidemiologic model, you you have to pay careful attention and not devote too much focus on it because we are not at the same place where some of the other countries were in testing. We are much better now, but South Korea, for instance, was doing 20,000 tests a day at the very beginning. Um, so flattening the curve, I think for most people is to recognize it's an important concept. We want to decrease those cases, uh, from all going to the healthcare system at the same time, but we also want to reduce the number of cases. And then again, the challenge with Italy is they're an older population, uh, a population that has a greater incidence of smoking and obesity, which can have a significant impact on your, um, morbidity and mortality if you contract coronavirus, and they also did not implement as many of the social distancing at this point in time as we have. I think what we're going to see near the end of this week is kind of where we are 
more so on that curve because we'll have done more testing um, and we're going to start in more social distancing and we're going to start to see more so by the end of this week, probably not over the next couple of days, but the end of the week, how successful we've been in flattening that curve. So again, delaying the number of cases, but remember, we're also improving our surge capacity, right? So if that were to occur, we have more ability to treat patients who are coming into the system. Thanks, Dr. White. I believe we have a question on the line from Jonathan. Jonathan, can you go ahead, please? Jonathan, are you there? Okay, I think second question. Is it's there line a is now open. From- Okay, go ahead. John, pass Yeah, the, the, the first thing I would just wanted to comment on the social distancing in Italy. I know that there's been a law in place there for a few weeks now where um, individuals cannot stand within uh, one meter of each other. Um, also, people going into supermarkets have to uh, line up with one meter separation of each other. So I don't know about the comments on social distancing over there, but that would be something to be looked into. <clears throat> the other question I had was, Regarding um, the Federal Reserve and coming in and, um, I guess, backstopping the bond markets, um, at what point do we see something like that in the equity markets, and what would it look like? Okay, Dr. White, go ahead and um, take that sure. question, and then I'll, I'll you know, meter. Question. Yeah, and, and, you know, we don't tend to use the metric system here in the U.S., you know, but a meter is roughly three feet. Really, what we're saying here is six feet. Not, everyone's not always following it, but that's what we think is the distance that respiratory, you know, droplets travel. Um, you know, again, I, I don't think we can completely compare and say, um, you know, Italy versus the U.S. I'm, I'm kind of looking at it more at the macro level. We take all the things in consideration, you know, what is the health overall of their population and access to care, and then try to make some comparison. Um, but I think most experts would say, and I don't think anyone can question, you know, Dr. Fauci's credentials, we're not Italy, and we are not likely on the same curve as Italy for various reasons, as, as I've articulated. And, and I think that's a good sign. But we must continue to do those mitigation strategies that have been, you know, implemented. And in some regions of the country, um, they're more intense than others, and, and that's a good thing. And then really we'll think about this risk stratification mitigation strategy over the next week. Thanks, Dr. White. In terms of the question with respect to the Fed, and clearly Margaret can also chime in in terms of what's already been done from the fixed income perspective on the equity markets, um, it's our view that it would be very unlikely that the Fed would come in and buy equities. I know there's been some talk of that and some chatter about that, but we haven't really heard any profound or um, absolute in terms of evidence that the Fed would even consider that. I know the ECB uh, has talked a little bit about that tertiary, from a tertiary level, I'm sorry, but uh, we haven't yet to be seeing uh, that in, in terms of a trend of the Fed or uh, coming in buying equities. Margaret, do you have anything else to add to that? Yeah, thanks, uh, Brian. Thanks for the question, Jonathan. Yeah, I think that part of the support on the corporate debt side if it's adequate enough, should hopefully translate into putting a bottom to the equity market. And the first thing we've got, one thing we've got going on are, are the, the real technical market disruptions whereby, you know, issuance is occurring at very, very wide spreads and markets are very thin. And, and that just really accelerates uh, any sort of uh, downturn in what's going on. And, and we're seeing the sort of the downturn, the downward spiral of right now, that feedback loop that's got to be stopped. So it really depends on, on how rapid the Fed can put these facilities into place, both in the primary and secondary market, and, the si- and what ultimately ends up being the size of these facilities as well. And so once we kind of get that put in place, the market can focus on the fundamentals. And the, the, the actual programs that the government comes up with will also help determine the fundamentals. If they are, you know, stringent in their treatment of, you know, how they're going to bridge companies during this time frame, 
There will be equity pain. Uh, that's a decision that the government has to make. Uh, if the goal is to freeze time for the majority of corporations where we say, where the government says, okay, we want everybody to be the same as they were basically two weeks ago when we come out of this thing, well, different level of support will be needed for that. Um, you know, it's probably going to be a mix of both with the smaller businesses getting uh, sort of free support and, and some of the larger corporations um, having having support that's a, a bit more costly. Uh, so we really just have to wait and see. But part of it, as I said, is really to stop the the disruption caused from the illiquidity in the market alone uh, outside of the, the credit issue. Thanks, Margaret. I think we have another question on the line from Branton. Branton, go ahead. Mr. Brenton Reiner, your line is now open. Okay, great. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I just had a question in terms of the second half rebound that uh, a lot of the banks have been talking about. Um, I'm just trying to wrap my head around that, given all the information that I've been presented on the news and whatnot. It doesn't really seem to me like that is going to be a possibility until we actually either have like a vaccine or some type of effective treatment. Otherwise, we might just be doing, you know, sessions of suppression on and off again, which, you know, I, I can't really see a rebound happening in the second half if we're doing constant uh, suppression cycles. Just wondering if, uh, you know, if you could just kind of unpack what you think their thinking is in regards to what the second half rebound would be initiated by. Michael, that sounds like a great question for you. Go ahead. Uh, sure thing. Well, I mean, there's something to keep in mind here. We're assuming here that by the very uh, start of April that uh, we, we will see uh, sort of the, the, the peak amount of uh, social distancing in an aggressive form uh, and uh, staying at home and shelter in place and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, th- 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 that will probably re- reflect the nadir, if you like, in terms of economic activity from, from, from COVID-19. Uh, and then, so the question then becomes, how long does that last? Uh, and, uh, and to, to your point, if, if, if it lasts a long time, uh, and, and it spills you know, over, you know, for, for, for the entire second quarter, obviously second quarter is going to be pretty dismal, and that's where you come up with these, you know, 25 to 50% contractions uh, in, in, in the period. But, but again, you know, the, the third quarter, then you, you, you start off essentially at zero. Uh, you're not going to shrink anymore. You're already at the nadir. Uh, and then, and then, so, you know, any kind of activity will, will, will likely generate, you know, growth rates that, that are going to look outside simply because, you know, you're starting off with such a low base that, that you benefit from that base effect. And also the stimulus, face it. There's an awful lot of stimulus coming through the pipe that, 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 you know, that's direct, you know, cash. Uh, uh, being injected uh, in, into the uh, economy, but but to your point that uh, you know you, you do wonder about this sort of whole flattening of the curve, and if it's the case that all we're doing is taking the cases we would have had anyway and just spreading them out over a longer period of time, uh, so that we we can deal with you know uh, the push up against surge capacity and all that kind of stuff, then 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 you run the greater risk of by by removing some of these uh, mitigation strategies of further flare ups. And therefore, you don't get, you know, you get some rebound in the economy, but you don't get a full rebound. And as it stands right now, you know, given how severe the downturn is going to get, and you even if you assume the kind of rebound we're thinking about and, and, and continuing into next year, and obviously not at that pace, but, but uh, it's going to take some time before we get back to where we were before in terms of the level of economic activity and uh, and so uh yeah the, the the fix here is going to the growth rates I think will look good but the actual level of activity relative to what we lost I think that that's going to take a little bit more time uh to climb back from Thanks Michael I believe we have a question from Tom Tom go ahead Yeah my question is for Dr. White could you could you talk a little bit more about uh what you see as some of the risk stratification um, you know, strategies, and then as well, can you talk about, you know, in your professional opinion, how long until kind of life is, you know, quote unquote, back to normal? Thanks. Sure. And, and, and I think, um, you know, and I'm not going to talk about the economics, you all know that better than I, but there is a, is a real concern about what is the economic impact of sustained mitigation strategies. And the reason why I say that is because the president has been retweeting 
about what some people are hoping that's going to happen at the end of 15 days, which is March 31st, um, and whether we can know how much progress we're making. I'm going to be honest. I think March 31st is early to know for sure how well we're doing with the mitigation strategies, but we'll have some sense, especially because we're dramatically ramping up testing. We're focusing on those that are most at risk, and we're going to see where we are in the number of deaths. That's what I think is a critically important marker plotted on days since we really started uh, these mitigation strategies. But Governor Cuomo, at his press conference today, was really, and he was using these terms, risk stratification mitigation strategies. So what he specifically was talking about was the schools and how does the closing of the schools, and Dr. Tom Frieden has talked about this, former CDC commissioner, really help slow the spread. You know, is it perhaps actually making it worse? Because we're having these kids home, they may be around elderly grandparents, and they may not also be doing as best as they can in terms of reducing mitigation strategies. So should we start thinking about um, those areas, such as the schools, should they remain closed in every region based on where we are in community spread, and are there some services that we can reopen in the economy that we believe um, do not increase risk of spread? I think that's what we're going to start thinking about. I don't think it's going to happen on March 31st, but perhaps could it start several weeks later where we start to have less of a lockdown and a shelter in place, but more exceptions to that based on data and based on science. Does that make sense? Because I think there's a big concern um, that, you know, how long can we sustain this? Six, eight more weeks and is that really improving the situation? And how do we address that some regions of the country uh, are not doing the same degree of mitigation? But I think that's where we're going to start to see the discussion. When industries can we open? Um, perhaps in four weeks from now or six weeks from now, while not increasing the spread, because I think it goes to the previous uh, uh, commenter that, you know what, we may see some up and down along the way where we start to release mitigation strategies, incidence goes up. But remember, we're thinking about effective treatment strategies. We're thinking about, you know, how do we protect surge capacity? We're talking about building more ventilators. We're talking about having more masks. So it really is about preparation. I think where we'll be in two to three weeks to have that discussion, I, I think we'll be at a better place. We're not there yet, um, but I think there's going to be a push to develop these risk stratification mitigation strategies. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that was great. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Dr. White. I think we have time for one more question. It's from uh, David McCall. Mr. McCall, go ahead. Afternoon, guys. Um, thanks for doing this. So question, I guess, related to maybe the economy and also um, for the doctor. So, to, I'm curious, like, what would be two or three data points that you might want to take a look at to see if a relaxation in the social distancing protocols that various states are using might happen within that, you know, call it that 15-day time frame, and whether the most likely outcome is that risk stratification. And then, Brian, question for you. you know, based on past collapses that we've seen in equity markets, I'm curious, you know, what do you view as that particular data point that we need to see for that maybe trough to hit in the market? See, that clarity would be maybe a vaccine coming out or something related to that. So I, I imagine, you know, 15 days if they relax it, we see this dead or infected cap bounce and then we're just back down. Um, I'll leave that thing. I'll let Dr. White start and then we'll follow up with my comments. Sure. Dr. White, go ahead. If you ask the number, what data points do I want to see? I would definitely want to see the number of deaths, and that's easy to collect relatively. But I also want to see the number of cases that are presenting to the ER uh, and being admitted to the hospital, because that's going to tell me a little bit about surge capacity. 
but that's going to differ in regions. So that's what's important to look at. Remember I said, you know, 50% of new cases are in New York State. So I want to know what's happening in that state with capacity. So again, it's the number of deaths that are happening nationally, but then the number of cases that are presenting to local ERs and hospitals and how they're addressing it. So I, I need to see capacity in, in more of those numbers. And I think we're starting to get those those data points. Thanks, Dr. White. In terms, David, in terms of your question with respect to the two or three data points, I think that's the needle in the haystack, the $64,000 question, the, the elephant in the middle of the room. Uh, our view has been resolute that we firmly believe that until we start to see less negative to get Matthew and Quanti on you, second derivative, less negative news on COVID, uh, this market is going to struggle. The equity market is going to struggle. I wish with all of my heart that we would see a capitulation bottom, which uh, uh, everyone's looking for, or a support level to hold. Uh, once one support level falls, the others uh, have really uh, – Fail to, to hold, and that's kind of traditional technical analysis in terms of monetary policy. Uh, difficult for for that to stop the bleeding in equity. Same thing from the fiscal response. So it's really difficult to say this is going to be principally because we are in uncharted waters, unprecedented. We in the business like to go back and look at historical uh, traditional precedents. Uh, as a roadmap, we don't have a roadmap to this, principally because of the information age and the emotions surrounding bullet point analysis and everyone jumping to conclusions and extrapolating their personal life onto their investment world. The good news is this, as I said in my, in my comments, uh, I stand resolute in terms of the, the fundamental wherewithal of the U.S. and Canadian stock markets, uh, and I do believe the things that are, are happening with respect to monetary policy, a fiscal policy, potential bailout to provide support uh, to the corporate side uh, and the strength of the consumer. People forget uh, that uh, we are running on all cylinders in terms of the consumer in employment heading into this. So I, we believe that the stock market in both countries, Canada and the United States, are well positioned to have an epic recovery uh, that no one's really talking about because we're so focused on making the big negative call right now. Nobody seems to want to step up and make the positive call in terms of we're going to have some unbelievable updates that I think people are not going to be positioned for if they remain to perish. And with that, that uh, finishes our call for today. I want to thank everyone for joining us. And just as a reminder, uh, for any questions going forward, please, please reach out to your BMO Relationship Manager and visit our webpage at bmocm.com for the most current updates on COVID-19. We have subject matter experts. Uh, that were heard today from all of our macro groups, all of our departments in terms of equities and fixed income that are providing great content to that page. And we encourage you to take a look at that. Please, everyone, stay safe, be well, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks again. Thank you. The conference is now ended. Please disconnect your lines at this time, and we thank you for your participation. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. 
BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.